0: Morning, Bethall. It's good to see you all this morning as we've come together to worship the Lord. All right, our scripture reading for this morning is Genesis 11:27 through 12:9. Genesis 11:27 through 12:9. This is the word of the Lord. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse.'" and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah, At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat.
1: Morning, Bethel. Um, Yeah, Adam, that was really encouraging. Um, Just want to say as a follow-up, you know, if there's interest in being involved with what Adam is doing, be sure to see him afterwards. I think also we can plan on um, just sending out a note with his email. If you want to adopt one of these guys to pray for them um, faithfully, regularly, Um, I think you can support the ministry there. By doing that. So, we'll make sure that's available this week um, in one of the emails that we send out from the office. So, we are um, doing a study through the book of Genesis, and we've come to chapter 12, end of chapter 11, beginning of, of chapter 12, as Tyler read a few minutes ago. So, uh, you might want to turn there in your Bibles if you're not there already. Um, <clears throat> and as you do, I want you to. Think of a pretty famous picture that probably all of us, most of us, have seen. Um, can you all picture the Iwo Jima flag-raising photo from World War II? Okay, a few of you can't. I don't know about copyright issues, so I didn't put it up. But, you know, it's like the six Marines, and the flag is like on a 45-degree angle, and they're like this, trying to put this flag up, um, on the island of Iwo Jima. So even if you're not familiar with the picture, you can go Google it later. Um, but the main thing is, do you know why that picture is so significant? Um, the photographer won a Pulitzer Prize for that picture. Um, you might not even know where Iwo Jima is. Well, it's an island in the South um, Seas, so south, wait, you know, south of Japan. Um, it's only eight square miles, little teeny tiny island like a postage stamp. It's 750 miles south of Japan, so what's the big deal about this little tiny island hundreds of miles from the mainland of the enemy? You know, after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, 1941. This happened in 1945. So the issue is that Iwo Jima was a an important early warning system for the mainland of Japan. So it was really important for the protection of the mainland. It was heavily fortified. And so as the U.S. was closing in on the mainland of Japan, U.S. bombers were based on the Mariana Islands, which was like further from Japan, and Iwo Jima was like in the middle, okay? So if you can picture that. So this early warning system was a problem if these bombers take off from the Mariana Islands heading to Japan Iwo Jima sees them, radios ahead to the mainland, and you don't have the element of surprise. So the U.S. forces invaded the island and eventually captured it, and they consequently weakened the Japanese ability to detect the approach, and they were also able to use it as like a landing strip for damaged bombers. But the significance of the flag raising was tied to what it meant, okay, it meant that the U.S. forces were claiming that territory for our side. It meant that we were closer to victory. And so that's why it was so profoundly important to the soldiers and the commanders. I mean, if you read stories of what happened, I mean, they were just jubilant when this flag went up because of what it meant. Um, I mean, it showed up in the U.S. papers two days later. And again, it's become this famous, iconic photo. Well, in Genesis 12, we actually have an equivalent to flag raising. You might go, wait a second, I I just listened while Tyler was reading. What in the world are you talking about? Well, hang with me, I think you'll see. So there's an equivalent to flag raising. It's one of the most important things that we need to see in this passage. So I encourage you to keep your eyes out for it as we go along. All right, so we're walking through the book of Genesis, studying chapter 12 this week. As we head into chapter 12, we're crossing into the latter half of the book of Genesis. Okay, so really big picture. Genesis is broken down into two parts. 1 to 11 is primeval history. 12 to 50 is patriarchal history. Okay? So 1 to 11 covers many, many, many generations. We don't even know how many, but then the text slows down and zeroes in on four generations for all of the rest of the book, chapters 12 to 50. So we're zeroing in now on the creation of the chosen people of God, the Israelites, the fathers of the faith and their families. So... um, also, a little bit of context here if you're visiting with us or maybe you've missed a week. Last week we considered Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. And the people, as was mentioned earlier this morning, the people were seeking to make a name for themselves by building a city with this great tower. They were also rebelling against God's original purpose, right? God's original purpose was that they would be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. They were made in his image so they were to fill the earth with his glory. But what did they want to do? They wanted to hunker down and fortify themselves in one place for the sake of their own security because they were operating independent of God. They were were wanting to be self-sufficient, and they were selfishly ambitious. They were trying to make a name for themselves. So that term, Babel, is the same term that's used for Babylon as the Bible unfolds. The kingdom and the city that comes to symbolize the city of man, like the world in all of its fallenness, God denying fallenness. And here's the funny thing. Where does this guy Abram come from? Okay, look at the end of chapter eleven. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran. This is verse 31. And Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans. Well, that's in Babylon. So that's where he comes from. So this is kind of ironic. It's actually kind of wonderful that the very man that God is going to use to restart his plan of redemption is from southern Babylon, the place that was, in a sense, judged and cursed. So, Abram, just like Noah, was a sinner. He's called and saved by grace. Abram was a pagan moon worshiper. They worshipped the moon in Babylon back in those days. So, Abram wasn't this, like, you know, glowing, godly man. No, salvation has been by grace through faith from the very beginning. And Abram is testimony to that. Okay? Joshua 24 makes it clear. Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So God called this pagan and made him his own. This calling is an act of grace. Grace. So John Salehammer, a commentator, summarizes it like this. The author of Genesis puts Abraham's call in the context of Ur of the Chaldeans, drawing a line connecting the call of Abraham in verses 1 to 3 with the dispersion of the city of Babylon, Tower of Babel, what we looked at last week, 11, 1 to 9, and thus making Abraham prefigure all those future exiles who in faith wait for the return to the promised land. By placing the call of Abraham after the dispersion of the nations of Babylon, the author intended to picture Abraham's call as God's gift of salvation in the midst of judgment. So there's one story, one story of God's saving grace, and it starts at the beginning and goes the whole way through the Bible um, by grace through faith from beginning to end. So Abram here is like a second Adam. God is blessing him in order to bless all of humanity through him. Um, God didn't choose him because he was this lone godly man on earth. He was chosen by grace, and so it all began with God calling Abraham. So that's where we start. Verses 1 to 3, you you can look at it there. And remember, we're just going through the first three points on the outline. If you're using that outline in the bulletin, uh, we'll cover the other stuff next week. Lord willing. All right? So now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Stop. (laughs) Because we need to realize that this would be everything to Abram. He is being called to leave behind all the normal sources of security and identity. Okay? So we... We are a more mobile society. You know, we rarely stay in one place very long, so we might miss the the significance of this or we might downplay it. But in the ancient Near East and in times past, a man's security was his homeland and his people and his family. Okay, this is as precious to him as life itself. So his family is his social security, it's his insurance, it's his pension, it's his assurance of marriage even, his physical, emotional well-being. It's located here. It's everything. So tied to the land and to the house of so-and-so is huge. And the Lord shows up and says, Go from your comfort zone. Go from your zone source of identity and security, and go to the land that I will show you. He doesn't even tell him where he's going to go, like where he's going to take him. Just go to the land. I will show you. Get ready. You'll find out soon enough. And, and again, I think we think, we import the rest of the Bible back in to Genesis 12. How much did Abram know about God at this point, know about Yahweh? Okay, when you see those four capital letters, it's Yahweh. That's his name. Lord is a title, so the translation is a little unfortunate because God wants us to know his name. He wants us to know him personally. So it's Yahweh, who, of course, he is the Lord, but this is a personal God calling Abram personally to trust and follow him. So we think, oh yeah, we have all the Bible. There's all these things we know about God. What did Abram know about God? <laughs> Hardly anything, and he's He's like willing to trust them and obey, like totally into the own, leaving everything behind. But Yahweh does give him some pretty amazing promises. So look at verses 2 and 3. I will make of you a great nation, which is crazy, because back in 1130, Sarah was barren. She had no child. So how are you going to do that? That's a crazy promise, a huge promise. And I will bless you and make your name great, So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse those. There's protection. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This random moon worshiper from Ur of the Chaldeans is going to be the one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, everything, notice this, maybe it's like, you know, hidden in plain sight here. Everything begins with the call of God, with the voice of God, with the word of God. There's no call, and Abram would have spent the remainder of his life worshiping the moon in Ur. But Yahweh has a plan, and the self-sufficient, selfishly ambitious people at the Tower of Babel aren't going to thwart that plan. So the same families that get dispersed by God in judgment throughout the earth because of their rebellion are the same families who through Abraham are going to be blessed. So even that judgment at Babel was for the sake of blessing. So we see the character of God here and his plan that is not going to get stopped by anybody. So he speaks to Abram, calls him to follow him, and notice this calling. It's all-encompassing, certainly, life-changing for Abram. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But it's followed by all these gracious promises. They're just piled up one on top of another. That is always the nature of God's call because it's the character of God. He doesn't go, do it because I said so. It's like bald command. He gives grace all around his commands. We never get the short end of the stick. Anybody? You agree? Amens to that? That's actually a big deal. Because if you think you're going to get the, end, the, the short end of the stick, you're not going to want to follow him anywhere. Or you're going to be, like, dragging your feet, begrudging in your following. We never get the short end of the stick with God. Remember the rich man, you know, he comes to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, first keep the commandments. Oh, I've kept those from my youth. Uh, okay, um, go. I'm, I'm going to actually touch the nerve now. Go, sell all you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Did you hear that? Like the kind that moth, moths and rust, moth and rust doesn't destroy, and thieves can't break in and steal. And come follow me. And what does he do? <sighs> Turns his. You know, shrugs his shoulders, turns away, because he had great possessions. His earthly possessions were big to him. Heavenly treasure and knowing God, having God, like, eh. So the disciples were amazed, right? Peter says, well, we've left everything to follow you. So what do we get? And Jesus said, listen, you never get the short end of the stick. It's kind of like the treasure hidden in the field. Yeah, you've got to sell everything to buy the field, but if the field's worth $50 billion and your estate is worth $400,000, you are giggling all the way to the pawn shop. Or Jesus in Mark 8. So, so we don't mute the seriousness of the call and what it means to trust Jesus and follow him, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what faith looks like. You are repenting, turning away from selfishness, trying to be the Lord of your own life, and you're trusting Jesus and following him because, here's where it's not the short end of the stick, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, well, save it, will find it. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? I want you to gain your lives for eternity. You're not going to get the short end of the stick. So this is Abram's call to trust and follow. We know that he did. This is not a calling. That's just a history lesson. Now, there's a sense in which Abraham is unlike us. We are not the father of faith. Like, we can't do this one-to-one, you know, parallel with Abram, we are not him. We don't have the same place in redemptive history. But on another, on the other hand, this calling is very much like our calling. This is how God saves. This is how He accomplishes His purposes of spreading His glory among the nations. It's how His kingdom comes as individuals like you and me respond to His call. So, have you really heard and responded to the call of God? Counted the cost? And really follow. Like, do you really believe you're not getting the short end of the stick? Go from all that is precious to you. Leave behind all your security, all your identity located in things and people that are not and cannot be your God or your Savior. This one sounds very similar. Matthew 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, cannot be my disciple. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So leave your old life with self at the center and come follow Jesus. It will cost you everything, but it will be worth it because we never get the short end of the stick if we're following Jesus. So, it will cost you everything. You'll no longer be the Lord of your life, as if you really were in the first place, but you will bow to and submit to and yield control to another. So, yes, count the cost. You won't know where all He will take you and what He will ask of you. There will be lots of loss and risk, but... It will be more than worth it. So make sure you include all the blessings in your cost-benefit analysis. You will exchange guilt and shame and spiritual debt for pardon and cleansing and riches of mercy. You will leave behind trying to find your identity and security in your performance and successes and in your stuff, trying to atone for your sins, trying to prove yourself, and you will know that you are a beloved son or daughter of God, your Father, and that his acceptance of you is not based on your performance, what you've done, but it's based on the performance of Jesus, what he's done for you. It is finished on the cross. So we hear in the call of God to Abram an early echo of the call of Jesus to follow him, for you and I to follow him. Jesus calls. He makes promises. Those promises are future by nature, right? I will be with you. So we've got to trust if we're going to follow. So let's look now at Abram's response. He had to trade all the the known for the unknown, the tangible and the visible for the invisible and intangible. So he would know God, but he wouldn't know where God was taking him. And he was be, being called to walk by faith into the unknown with the one who was making himself known to Abram and making known his promises. Okay? You know, part of the fulfillment of those promises, he wouldn't even live to see. I'm going to make you in a great nation. I'm going to give this land to your descendants So obvious call to faith, which is point number two. We trust and follow. Look at verse four. So Abram went as Yahweh had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So... Thankfully, once again, we've got some inspired commentary on this section. Okay? Hebrews has already provided that with Abel and Enoch and Noah. If you've been here in previous weeks, um, now it helps us interpret this episode with Abraham. So maybe you want to flip over to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. So you see this. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find what we're looking for on page 1007. Hebrews 11, verse 8. So by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. By faith, he obeyed. When he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. It was a promise. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents, With Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So clearly, Abram went in faith. Now, need to consider the significance of what he did once he got to Canaan. Okay? I I didn't realize this prior to studying for this week. Um, so first off, this is a crazy long trip, okay? It's like 400 plus miles, okay? Back like before the days of cars and whatever else. Think of what it would take to travel with a caravan of people and animals 400, years, or 400 miles, okay? The dangers, the threats. So in our time, we would find a way to make it you know, seem epic. There would be a video. You know, maybe they'd make a reality show out of this trip. But here, the author here is like one sentence, Because that's actually not where the importance lies, the trip. Author doesn't focus on the trip. Author author focuses on what happens when he gets to Canaan. So look at the end of verse 5 and and verse 6. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So Canaanites, ooh, has some ominous overtones, right? So wait, God called Abram to a land he would show him. And when he got there, it's already occupied. Like, come on. (laughs) And these are like some fearsome, unsavory pagans. But Yahweh doesn't leave Abram to figure it out on his own. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram. It's actually kind of cool. First he said, now he appears. It's like he cares about Abram's faith, doesn't he? Like, building his confidence that he can be relied upon, making it real who he is. So Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So notice this progression. Is this, this is worth noting, I think. Go to the land I will show you. Okay, trust and obey. It's the land I'm going to give you. He didn't say the give up front. Abram's not a mercenary here. He's trusting the Lord. So what does Abram then do? He built there an altar to Yahweh who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Aon east. And there he built an altar, another one, to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So there's actually a third altar that's built if you keep reading in Genesis 13. If you want to just skip ahead there a little bit, look at 13, 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Okay, so probably none of us, maybe a few of us, maybe Vito if he's here. um, We don't have the geography of the ancient Near East emblazoned on our minds. If we did we would notice that Abram is moving through Canaan, beginning in the north, and he's moving to the south. And at three key places, he's building an altar to Yahweh. So what's that all about? Well, it's likely that he's actually building these altars in Canaanite worship places, like places where there was pagan worship of Canaanite gods, Taking place. So, what's actually going on? Abram is planting a flag for Yahweh. Yahweh had promised the land, and Abram is already claiming it in faith. He's building an altar, a permanent structure to put the Canaanites on notice that this is Yahweh's land. So, do you see how he's trusting this God and his promises? Like he's putting his mortar where his mouth is. I just came up with that on the spot. Yeah, you can. Um, so here's the other cool thing I think that we're supposed to see. There's a powerful contrast here. Do you notice that Abram is building altars, but he's just pitching his tent. Come on. Anybody see what's going on here? He's not about himself. Do you remember back in Hebrews 11? By faith he went to live in the land of promises, as in a foreign land living in tents, temporary dwellings. Heirs of the promise. Why? Because he's looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram is not about making his name great, even though God promised to make a name for him. He's not about establishing himself in his security, his identity. He's not about building his kingdom. He's all about making Yahweh's name great. He's about establishing the identity of Yahweh among the nations. He's all about God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Hmm. So, we've already considered the kind of echoes, the parallel with our call of God to follow Christ, like Abram's following the call of of God by faith. So, When we do follow Jesus, where are we going? Where are we headed? What are we supposed to do? Well, Abram, our father in the faith, gives us footsteps that are worth following. His trust in God, his following God, meant that he desired the name of God to be hallowed where it was not. In Canaan. That's, That's the promised land. That's his land. That's Yahweh's land. He wanted God's kingdom to come where it hadn't yet. He wanted God's will to be done. And he knew that his faith and obedience was part of how that prayer would be answered. So, what's the equivalent of altars for us in our part of the great story of God's plan of redemption and restoration? Because God is at work to fill the earth with the glory, with the knowledge of His glory as the waters cover the sea, right? So what would you say? What, what, what's the equivalent of an altar? That'd be something worth thinking about this afternoon. I'll give you a few thoughts to kind of prime the pump here. How about how your family, how you personally and how your family lives? Okay? So you remember when Joshua spoke to the people at that time of covenant renewal in Joshua 24? He said, If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, uh, the the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm planting a flag right here. This family belongs to Yahweh, and it's going to shape the way we live. Now, I know that's hard. but we can pray and we can labor and we can repent of our failures and we can seek more grace so that we can actually live like that as families in this community he's planted us in. So what might that mean to plant the flag in your family as far as or personally family priorities, personal priorities, values, what you spend your time on, what you spend your money on, your sexuality, your thoughts, your aspirations and dreams, your future. I love it that Adam is praying, 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 praying. What do you want me to do in Wilmington? I'm concerned about this city. I want to plant a flag for Jesus here. So let's do that. Let's pray, 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 pray. Lord, how do you want to use us here? So certainly our own lives, This heart right here, this mind right here, this belongs to Jesus. So planting the flag. This family, planting the flag. And when we do this, our homes are like little embassies of the kingdom of heaven. This soil right here belongs (laughs) to heaven. What's an embassy? It's the soil of another country on foreign soil. It's under the jurisdiction and the rule, ultimately, of another sovereign. And it's a representation of that kingdom. So that ought to be the case with our lives. That ought to be the case with our homes. And if that's the case for the Christian house, household, home, how much more the local church? So a church is like a city of God embassy planted in the city of man. We are called to be salt and light. We're bringing the light of the coming kingdom of light into the darkness of this world. So the day is dawning, right? Jesus has already come. Inaugurated end. It's already coming. It's broken in into time. Jesus was raised from the dead. People are being raised spiritually. The resurrection is coming. It's already begun. Everything is being made new. So we are called to bring the light of the coming kingdom of light into the darkness of this world. The day is dawning. The darkness is passing away. So when we bring the light, we're planting the Jesus flag, giving people the invitation to come and follow Jesus, willingly, joyfully bowing the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords, or putting people on notice that they will one day be forced to bow the knee if they refuse that's what Bethel is here for. That's what we're here for. And then what is church planting? <laughs> if, if this is what we're called to do, it's claiming God's territory for him, isn't it? It's already his. The earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And if we get captivated by this vision, we're going to follow Jesus on mission and claim more ground for King Jesus and Bethel just might be used of God to plant more churches in this area and beyond. You go, well, we're not even growing here. are planting churches. Like, okay. Well, maybe it's because we don't believe this. <laughs> maybe we need to just look in and say, okay, who's who's ruling this land right here? This here. This here my family. My life. This church. And where do I need to repent and trust Jesus and follow him and just see what he would and pray, 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 pray and see what he does so we need to heed the call trust and obey, let's go plant some flags for Jesus (laughs) we're not saved for nothing, we weren't blessed just for us we were called to be conduits so third and last point, called to be conduits, we'll look again at verses 2 and 3 and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, not as an end in itself, but so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will, On him, and him who dishonors you all will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So blessing, huge biblical theme, central here. Um, the original blessing, remember Adam and Eve. Bless them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with the glory. Sin wasted that blessing and led to a curse Right? The effects of the curse end up multiplying and filling the earth. God washes it clean, but still Noah, drunk and naked, spreading again. Tower of Babel, dispersed. And he starts anew with Abram. And he blesses him. And he's going to multiply That blessing through him. A new people are going to be created by God's grace. He's going to bless this man so that that blessing will spread. So there's evidences that that happened actually in Genesis. Think of Joseph, right? So Genesis 39, from the time that Potiphar made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So the nations get blessed through Abraham's offspring. And ultimately, people get saved because Joseph ends up being second in command and, you know, all of that story. But the bigger picture, this doesn't ultimately get fulfilled until the son of Abraham. This blessing really coming. The son of David, the son of God, born in Bethlehem, ultimately taking the curse for us so that we can be blessed both now and forever. So, yeah, some fulfillment in the book of Genesis, but not really fulfilled until Jesus comes, takes the curse so that we can be blessed. So, just flip to Galatians 3. So you can see this. Galatians 3... Page 973, Pew Bible, if you're using that. 3-7. <clears throat> know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, all the, <laughs> justify the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. This is our passage being quoted. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the, lo- the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations, to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So all this blessing comes to us through Christ, the fulfillment of these promises to Abraham. We have been blessed immeasurably in Christ. Like Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has Blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then he just goes on to enumerate blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. blessing. And all of that blessing is given to us not to just get stuck in the little cul-de-sac of our lives, our comfortable lives. No. We're blessed and called to be conduits to pour out that blessing on others. Right? Water that sits gets stagnant. We're called to be streams of blessing to others, not receptacles of blessing just for ourselves. So what gifts, what talents, what experiences has God given you that you can leverage to bless others in the interest of planting a flag for Jesus in this community? Let's pray for this. Let's encourage each other and trust and obey and follow Jesus wherever he leaves us, leads us. So we, we plant flags by passing on the blessing that we've received in Christ. So think about it this way, just one quick little thing and then we'll be done here. Can you imagine how later generations, and I'm thinking particularly of Joshua and the people entering the promised land, how encouraging this would be? So the land was inhabited and Abram went from top to bottom and said, this is Yahweh's land. And what were they about to do? <laughs> the land was inhabited. These people were really big. Scary. But this is Yahweh's land. He's done it before. He can do it for us. So following Jesus gets scary. Sometimes we want to shrink back and save our lives. But do you see the cloud of witnesses cheering us on to throw off whatever hinders and fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race that he sets before us. Let's pray, pray, pray that we'll trust him no matter what and encourage each other so that we can plant the flag of King Jesus here in Wilmington. So how can you bless those in your life with the blessing of the gospel today, tomorrow, this week? I think we first need to rehearse the gospel to ourselves every day, making sure we're not feeling like we get the short end of the stick. Oh, no. Got all this blessing. And it's for not just me. It's for somebody else today. So maybe a little stick note on your bathroom mirror. Rehearse the blessings and ask God who he wants to bless through you today. We are not just recipients of blessing, but conduits of blessing. We are given grace to give grace. And this is the fruit of living faith, Abrahamic faith. So we're going to close with a song that's actually a prayer. Okay? It's a prayer that we would have this kind of living Abrahamic faith for the glory of the name of King Jesus in Wilmington and wherever else in the world he wants to use us. So let's pray and then we'll sing. Father in heaven, you are our father by your amazing grace toward us in Christ. And so as your sons and daughters, we call on you as our father and say, hallowed be your name in our hearts in our families, in our church, in our city, in your, all of the above, in your your world. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray it in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.